Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. Today we are going to finish our series on reborn identity. We've been learning what it is to have a reborn identity, and in fact that we have one uh, because we have been reborn. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Jesus is talking and he says, he says, you not only have to be born of water, but you have to be born of the Spirit. You don't only have to be natural birth, but you have to be rebirthed by the Spirit. And so when you are rebirthed, you become a new creature. And when you become a new creature, you have new creatural habits. And as, as you have new habits, your life should change. And you should, you should live according to who you are. And so we've been talking about what it is, what it is we've been privileged to be in our new identity. What we've not only been privileged to be, but that we've been chosen to be according to our new identity. And today I want to talk to you about how not only are we privileged to have a new identity, not only have we been chosen to walk in that identity, but that we are capable of walking in that identity, that reborn identity. And so today, if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do so, the, the title of this lesson is We Are Capable. As you guys know, the, because I've told you through both of these services, this being the third one, I'm primarily doing this for this series for one purpose, and that is to encourage you to let you know that God considers you privileged and has made you privileged, that he has chosen you because of his love for you. And today, I want to do the same thing, but I want to add something. I don't only just want to encourage you today, I want to challenge you today. Because if we are capable, then we should be encouraged that we're capable, but at the same time, we should be challenged to walk as though we're capable. Our, our identity requires something of us. If I, if I belong to a family, there are house rules in that family. There are expectations of that family. And, and the house rules and the expectations differ from family to family to family. And so because we are part of God's family, there are rules to the household. So I, I do want to encourage you today, and I do hope that the message encourages you today. But equally as much as I want you to be encouraged, I want you to be challenged. I, I can't imagine preaching a sermon that you don't walk away from, that we don't walk away from, that I don't walk away from, going, you know what, I'm wondering if I'm lacking in that area. Holy Spirit, show me how to fix it. And so that's, that's, my, that's my hope today, that's my plan today. But more than anything, I want to talk to you about how we are capable. If you'll look up capable in the dictionary, this is the definition, according to just your standard dictionary. Having the ability or quality necessary to do or achieve a specific thing. And so all of us have the ability to do a specific thing. But we need to know where our capability comes from. If we are capable, are we capable on our own to accomplish Christ-likeness? The answer to that question is absolutely not. So we are all capable because of our new identity, but we need to recognize and focus on where our capability lies, where it comes from. I want to start with an illustration today about a guy named Herbert Jackson. Herbert Jackson was a missionary, and he was assigned to a specific area, and he was in that, in that assignment for two years. When he got there, somebody gave him the keys and, to a car that was also assigned to that specific missionary post. And when he got in it, he realized that 
it, it wouldn't start. It very rarely started. And so because it wouldn't start, but once it got running, it would run well, he got to where he would, every time he would go somewhere to preach, he would do one of three things. He would ask people to help push him so he could jumpstart it. He would keep it running. Or he would, he would park on top of a hill so he could roll off that hill to get it started. And he did this for two years. You can imagine the inconvenience of having a vehicle that didn't start. And so for two years, he did one of these three things. And then after the second year, when he was replaced and that post was, was given a new missionary, he was explaining to the new missionary about the car that he had or the car that he would have. He threw him the keys. He said, the car runs great once you get it started. But unfortunately, you have to push start it or let it roll off a hill or keep it running because once it turns off, it's almost impossible to start back. So he hands the keys to the missionary, the new missionary coming on to post, and the missionary opens up the car, pops the hood, looks at it. He goes, you know what? He goes, I don't, I don't think there's a problem with the car. He says, this cable appears to be loose to the battery. And so he reaches down there with a wrench and he tightens up that cable gets in the car, turns the key, and the car immediately starts up. Vroom. And so it wasn't that the car wasn't capable of starting. It's just that it was disconnected from that which made it capable, which caused it to be incapable. This is the condition of much of the Christian church today. We don't recognize that we are capable but we are only capable as we are connected to our power source, the Holy Spirit. That which we can accomplish, those things that we can do, this having the ability or quality necessary to achieve a specific thing only comes because of the things that we've discussed. Because Jesus Christ is, a, is the cornerstone and we are built, being built upon him as living stones, unshakable. And in that unshakable position, he has placed his spirit in us, which we talked about some of that last week. And in placing his spirit in us, we have become capable. It's sad, but I think probably if the Holy Spirit left the church today, 70% of what happens in the church would still happen. Like nothing ever happened. Because we've grown so used to parking ourselves on top of a hill and self-starting that that we don't know any other way. But I want to tell you today that God has given you his spirit. God has given us his spirit. He is our power source. Ephesians 1.19 says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, his power, and his, and so his might empowers us. It's his Holy Spirit that empowers us. And so as we talk about being capable today, I want us to always remember that we're only capable of doing the things that God has called us to because we are connected, and when we are connected properly to the body of Christ, to the Spirit of God. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today, the fact that we are capable. And I'm going to talk to you about how we are capable out of the same passage we've been working through for the last three weeks, and that is 1 Peter chapter 2. And so if you'll turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to cover 10, 10 through 12 today. Last week I covered verse 9, the week before that, verses 4 and 5. And so 10 through 12 read like this. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so I want to talk to you today about three things that we're capable of doing according to these texts. And I'm going to cover each verse and each individual point. And so the first point I want to cover today, like I said, take notes so that you can go back and one, study them. And two, make sure I'm not telling you something crazy. Number one, we are capable of giving mercy. We are capable of giving mercy. Verse 10 says, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. That's so good. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We can give mercy because we have received mercy. Jesus Christ died so that we, as an extension of his mercy for us. Verse 10 says, For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. This happens because Jesus, God through Christ Jesus determined to extend mercy mercy to us which is an extension of compassionate love in a tangible way towards us he didn't just stand up in heaven and go man those guys are in a rough way they're heading straight to hell there's there's some stuff we could do about that but we're not going to do it he determined to pour out his mercy on us he determined to show us compassion he determined to to point his love at us why because we are his people and so he had to tangibly because of his character, because of his holiness, because of his perfectness, he had to tangibly show us that he loves us because he is love, that we are his people. We learned last week out of Isaiah 23.1, or sorry, 43.1, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I spent a great deal of time talking about that last week. I'm not going to really get into it today, but I want you to know that we are His, that we belong to Him. He has called us by name so that He can demonstrate His mercy to us, so that He can show us that He loves us, that He has extended us compassion in a tangible way. Let me tell you, if you, if you can't show tangible ways in which you love someone, then you don't love them. You're giving them lip service. You see somebody that's hungry, we talked in the offertory a few minutes ago, if you see somebody that's hungry, or you see somebody in need, or you see somebody that just, just looks like they need a hug, and you can't extend that to them, you don't love them. At the very least, you're indifferent towards them. At the very worst, you hate them. Especially if you're a Christian, because you have to be who you say that you are. We have to work according to the mercy that God gave us. And God gave us mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, according to His great compassion, His great love, demonstrated to us in a tangible way, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm going to say something pretty, pretty obvious here. Jesus Christ could have only been resurrected if Jesus Christ hadn't, had, had died. He couldn't have resurrected had he not died. He died so that you might live. 
This is a tangible expression of the love and the compassion that he has for us. He paid for our sins. He stood in our place as an extension of compassion and love for us. I know I'm repeating myself, but can't tell you, can't even start to tell you how important, how significant it is that you recognize that God has extended mercy to us. We didn't deserve it. We will never deserve it, but he poured it out on us anyway. Galatians 3.13 says, God redeemed us, or Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Could you imagine sitting in a courtroom and you see some guy that's about to go to prison for insert whatever the issue is here. And you say, you know what, I know he deserves prison, but I'm going to take his place. And you decide to stand in his place, you go to prison so that he might be made free. This is what Christ did for us. This is his tangible expression of mercy towards us. He took what we deserved so that we wouldn't have to take it. He stood in our place so we wouldn't have to stand there. He nailed himself to a cross so that we wouldn't have to be, we wouldn't have to see the suffering and the persecution and all the stuff that we would see in all of eternity. He did so that we wouldn't have to. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves you. He suffered your fate because he loves you. I want you to know more than any other thing, and here's the encouragement, that you are loved. I want to scream every time I read about the trial, the persecution, the beating of Christ Jesus. I want to scream, why would you do such a thing for me? And the answer is, is because true love sacrifices because we are his beloved because he sees us for much more than who we are but because of who we are capable of being and then only capable of being because of what he has done for us which is extended mercy to us are you listening to what i'm saying today before we even get started i want you to know that he gave us mercy and because he gave us mercy, we must prefer mercy. Mercy doesn't show itself. That doesn't show itself in action isn't mercy. Like I told you a moment ago, it's indifference at the best, cruelty at the worst. James 2.13 says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no, no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I, don't, I want you to listen to that again because I think we think we have an option or a choice to extend compassion and love to other people. Judgment will be merciless. This is, this is scripture inspired by the word of God, James 2.13. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment this means that mercy must be preferred over judgment i want you to look at your neighbor your person sitting on the couch here with you and say mercy triumphs over judgment it has to otherwise our judgment will be merciless and i don't know about you but i don't want that in my life i've 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 done too many dumb things i've walked in too many stupid places 
for me to be answerable now for something that I can avoid just by simply demonstrating the love that God demonstrated to me to other people. This means that mercy must be preferred over judgment for those who have received mercy. Luke 4, 47 says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You must love much because you have been forgiven much. Always remember the death that we deserve. Did you hear what I said? Always remember the death that we deserved. According to Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is what? Death. We deserve death, but Jesus extended mercy to us. And because He extended mercy to us, He expects us to do it to the same, the same as He did for us. Luke 6.38 says this, it says, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured in return to you. Let me tell you, I hear every time I hear this verse, I hear it in regards to giving financially, sowing into the ministry. Listen, if you'll just pay your tithes, it's going to be pressed down, shaken together, and running over. If you'll just give that little bit more offering, it'll be pressed down, shaken, and running over. Can I read you the verse before that? Luke 6, 37. Let me turn to it real quick. You can't take a verse out of context and make it say what you want it to say. We have to regard the word and cause it to say only that which it intends to say. And according to Luke 6.37, this is what it says. It says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. And then it starts with the pour into your lap, good measure, pressed down, shaken together. What's it talking about giving? It's not talking about giving financially. Although I believe that there is a principle there of financial giving. It's not what it's talking about. Specifically, it's talking about that we shouldn't judge, that we shouldn't condemn, that we are required to pardon because we have been pardoned. We are expected to give mercy because we have received Mercy. Let's pay attention to the word. Let's not manipulate it or cause it to say something it doesn't say. The fact of the matter is, is that we don't have a choice but to forgive, but to love, but to show compassion in a tangible way. Because those things have been done for us. There's a story in your Bible, Matthew chapter 18, many of you are familiar with it, about forgiveness, about the extension of mercy. 1821 through actually 35. And I, I'm going to read it. I know it's going to take a few moments, but just bear with me. It's important. If, if I don't get any other point across to you today, because you've received mercy, you should give mercy. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and forgive me? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, for I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Listen, anytime it says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, there's about to be a challenge. Jesus Christ is about to drop a challenge on Peter regarding forgiveness. He asked him, he said, do I forgive seven times? He goes, no, seven times seven. Or seven times seventy. 
which is 490 times. And I can imagine Peter saying 490 times, how am I supposed to keep up with that? And Jesus said, exactly. You're not supposed to keep up with that. Your responsibility is to do for others as I have done for you. I know that I've sinned more than 490 times, but he's still forgiven me. And so we should forgive others. But anyway, so I, I digress. When he, verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. A talent is 15 years wages. If you do the math on that, that means he owed the king $4,134,000,000. This is no small debt. But since he did not have the means to repay his, his Lord, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So he had a justice that he deserved to get. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. He felt compassion and expressed that compassion in a tangible way. You know what he did? He showed him mercy. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Just so you know, a denarii, a denarius is one day's wage, which means that he owed that slave $10,600. I want you to compare and contrast the two. One owed $4,134,000,000 and was forgiven it because the king was merciful. The, uh, that slave was owed by another slave $10,600 and wouldn't forgive it because he wasn't willing to establish the mercy or demonstrate the mercy that was demonstrated to him. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, I will repay you. The exact same action that he took against the king, but he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Jesus Christ forgave us all of our debt because we repented to him, because we fell on our face and asked for forgiveness of the debt that we owed. That's good right there. I hope you're paying attention. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Do you hear that? We should hear God's voice the way we read this earthly king's voice it says my father because the same is true will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother what is that same handed him over to the torturers until he should be repaid all that was owed you want to know why hell's eternal because you can't repay that which is owed and so in the eyes of a holy God, we all deserve to be tortured for all of eternity for, a, for an eternal debt that can't be repaid. But praise God, he demonstrated mercy to us. 
He extended compassion and love to us in a tangible way. That tangible way is his son Jesus. And because of that, we should too. And so the challenge is, are you extending mercy? Are you holding a grudge? Are you judging people because they don't look like you, because they don't act like you, because they don't talk like you, because they don't have the financial resources that you have, because they don't have the pedigree that you have or the uh, religious background or insert whatever it is that would separate you from them? There's every reason in the world that God should have been separated from us. But he bridged the gap. The non-offended bridged the gap to the offended. The one who was sinned against bridged the gap to the sinner. And you think that it's okay that we stand by and hold unforgiveness? That we don't extend mercy? That instead we judge? The challenge is, is that we have to let some things go. It's not worth our eternity to hold on to something that God's willing to let go of in our life and not do the same for someone else. I feel like I've Talked about that enough. We have to extend compassion and love if we expect compassion and love to be extended to us. Number two, we are capable of living separated. We are separated. Let me read you verse 11. Behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul we are separated as aliens and strangers this literally means that this world is in our home we don't belong here we live here but our eternal home is heaven and because our eternal home is heaven and that's where it's secure that's where our hope lies that's what we should act we should act as though we are citizens of that place just like imagine if you if you will and i've I've been, to, I've been to several foreign countries where I didn't understand the culture, I didn't understand the language. And so I fly there, I get off the plane, and I start talking to people, and I realize I don't, I don't speak their language, I don't understand their culture, I don't understand their habits, I don't understand anything that's going on. So what, what did I do? What did I find myself doing? Unless I had an interpreter there, I would find myself kind of pulling back away from the culture, still living within it, still existing within it, but secluding myself from it. This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, listen, you have to be in it, but you don't, you're not supposed to understand the culture. You're not supposed to learn the language. You're not supposed to pick up the habits. What you're supposed to do is live in it while staying secluded from it. But we don't do that. We determine that we want to live the culture. We want to understand the culture. We want to learn the language. We want to pick up the habits. When this is in direct contradiction to the word of God. It says that we are aliens and strangers. It's time that we start living as aliens and strangers. We're not supposed to conform to the world that we live in. Romans 12, 2 very, very specifically states, And do not become conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't learn the language. Don't learn the culture. Don't learn the habits of a society that is out to destroy you, that is out to destroy your family. Jesus Christ came and died so that we might be new creatures, according to the Word of God. This is what the Bible tells us. And we are determined to live outside of who we are now. As new creatures, 
You have a new lifestyle. You have a new expectation. You should have a new expectation. Because God has an expectation of you. So where is our home? Philippians 3.20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.12-13 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, which is heaven. Because we aren't of this world, but transferred to His kingdom, we must act as though we are separated. So what's the encouragement? The encouragement is that I don't belong to this world, that Jesus Christ extended mercy so that I might have a new citizenship and that I have a hope in that citizenship and that I have an expectation within that citizenship that, that the, the king is going to take care of me. I have moved from a democracy to a theocracy, recognizing that the God is sovereign, that the God is Lord, that the God takes care of his people. We serve a king that takes care of his people, and we should live as though we believe that because it's absolutely true. That's the encouragement. What's the challenge? To live as though that's true. If we are aliens and strangers, then we should live as aliens and strangers. We should live separated. We should abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We should desire to be separated. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Your very nature has changed. And we should act like it. Can I, can I ask you a question? I'm going to pause for a question. And that is, do you look differently today than the day you gave your life to the Lord? Do you act differently do you speak a different language? Do you have different habits than the day you gave your life to the Lord? I'm not asking, are you perfect in your habits? Are you perfect in your language? I'm asking, are you, are you being perfected in your habits and in your language and in your culture? Because the Bible says here in 2 Corinthians that the old things should have passed away and the new things should come. Romans 6, 4 says, We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too may walk in the newness of life. So why did it happen? So that we too might walk in the newness of life, so that we might walk according to our new nature, that we not be conformed, which means we're not molded into the world's um, expectation. Guys, I'm trying to put something on you here. Let me tell you the single most frustrating thing for any pastor I've ever talked to is to hear a congregant, a, a church member, or a Christian, and I'm going to put those Christian in, in quotation marks, give a church house confession of righteousness and then walk outside the church house and live like hell. It's frustrating to me. It's frustrating to every pastor I know because it's frustrating. It's got to be frustrating to God. The Bible's very clear about what God thinks of people that walk in, hypocr in hypocrisy. Those that are lukewarm, 
which literally means to say I am one thing, but actually be something else. Our responsibility is to be who we say that we are. To stop saying I am a Christian and living like you're not a Christian. Saying that I have the mind of Christ and then having the mind of the world. To say that I'm going to live according to the culture, the family expectation, but at the same time living according to the expectation of society. You can't do both. You're going to serve one master or the other. And let me tell you, the Word of God says that if you're lukewarm, God is going to spew you out of His mouth. He'd rather you be hot or cold. At least then He knows at least then you're being honest with yourself. So what are you? What are we? I don't want to disclude myself because I fall. I do stupid stuff too. But at the end of the day, what are you striving for? What are you trying to be? What are your expectations of yourself? And those expectations of yourself should be the expectations that God has of you because that is the world that we live in. That is the theocracy that we live in. That is the kingship that we've submitted to. But let me encourage you. After I feel like I just handcuffed you to the beaten post. Let me encourage you. That's not going to happen overnight. But you know what should happen overnight? And when I say that, I mean perfection. You're not going to get saved. You're not going to give your life to the Lord. Walk inside the church. Never cuss again. Never drink again if you're an alcoholic. I hope that that's the case. And I'm not saying that God's not capable of that. But the likelihood of that happening, every now and then we all fall do something stupid. Thank God for grace. So the encouragement is that we may not be immediately perfect, but the challenge is that we should have a desire to be immediately perfect. We should wake up every day with an expectation of perfection. We should walk every day with an expectation of perfection even when we miss the mark of perfection, because we are a new creature, living in a new society, living in a new culture, with new family habits. Live according to your family, because we're not of this world. We simply have to live in it. When we do this, when we live according to to our citizenship. Number three happens. We are capable of glorifying God. Verse 12 reads like this. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. They may because of your good deeds as they observe them. Glorify God in the day of visitation. We glorify God as we keep our behavior excellent. You know, you guys have heard me say it multiple times before. And I'll probably, there's a couple things that I just repeat all the time because I think they're important. And so you're going to hear me say them, this particular thing over and over and over again because it's true. When people hear us confess that we're Christians, they're going to believe us. The question is, what are you showing them Christians look like? Sadly, so many of us don't, after confessing that we're Christian, live like we're Christian outside the walls of the church. And the Word tells us that 
They slander us as evildoers. And when they slander us as evildoers, they slander God as evildoers. You're misrepresenting who you say you belong to. Let me give you an example. My wife will tell you, I, I love kids. Five minutes at a time. It's kind of a joke, kind of not a joke. <laughs> uh, but imagine, if you can, recall if you can, going to a grocery store. And you see some kid acting absolutely out of his mind in there. We're in Walmart, some kid laying on the floor, kicking his legs up and down and screaming at the top of his lungs because he didn't get the toy that he wanted. Or sitting in a restaurant trying to enjoy a meal with, with your spouse and the kid next to your table is screaming at the top of his lungs just because his parents simply don't seem to care. What is the first thing that pops into your head? Is it that kid shouldn't act like that? Or is it, I can't believe that kid's parents let him act like that? For me, it's, I can't believe his parents let him act that way. Because he's acting only according to the way that he's been raised to act. Do you not realize, can we not realize that when people see us say that we're Christian and begin to acknowledge the family that we belong to and see us acting as spoiled children, that it reflects negatively on the father that we have? That they say, is this the God that they serve? That is so undisciplined, so uncaring for them that he allows them to act this way? I don't want, I don't, I don't only want anything to do with, I, 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 know I, don't, I not only don't want anything to do with this family, I don't want anything to do with this dad. We have to keep our behavior excellent so that they don't slander us. But can I tell you, that's the least of the, that's the least significant thing. But so that they don't slander the father that is the head of our family. But let me tell you, when we do live our confession, they see it. And they begin to glorify God. My grandparents, my papa used to give me a talk every time we'd go in someplace. And it didn't matter if it was a restaurant or Walmart or an antique shop, because he liked to do that. It did, wherever we went, before we got out of the car, he goes, you put your hands in your pockets, you're going to say yes, sir, and no, sir. You're going to be polite. You're going to do what you're told. Your job is to be seen, not heard. And you know what my papa, what I heard people say about my papa? Is that man is raising those kids right. The same thing happens in regards to how people glorify God when they see our excellent behavior. It disarms them. It disarms the antagonist when we act according to our confession. And they begin to say, you know what? Maybe I would be interested in being part of that family. Maybe I would like to know the security that they know. Maybe I would like to be able to have the confidence that they have, the love that they have, the ability to forgive and extend mercy that they have. Maybe I would like to be privileged like they're privileged. Maybe I would like to be loved as they are loved. And as they begin to do those things, there's only one possible outcome. 
that God be glorified in it all. So that ultimately, according to this text, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Which means upon Christ's return, they will be ready. And because of your willingness, your capability, because you are empowered properly by the Holy Spirit to extend mercy, to not only extend mercy, but to live as aliens and strangers, and to behave in an excellent fashion, you will be ready for the day of visitation also. That's my prayer today. I'm not going to do a, an altar call as, as a virtual altar, altar call as it is. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you today. I want to pray with you. I want you to understand that God does love you. That he has privileged you to be part of his spiritual household. That he has, according to the text, made you a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that we might proclaim the goodness of who he is. And in all of those things that we have family responsibility, the things that we're capable of doing, which are those things for others that God has done for us. And so I challenge you to remember those things. But I also encourage you to walk in those things. The fact that God loves you. The fact that God loves me. Because I know what's in my closet blows my mind let us live according to our not our born identity but our reborn identity as new creatures let's pray Father God in Jesus name we love you and we thank you heavenly Father God that you love us that you have extended mercy to us God that you have empowered us by, the, by your Holy Spirit to walk in Christ likeness to live separated from the world to be able to show other people a reflection of who you are because your love resides in us. I ask that you give us a personal conviction to be everything that you've called us to be, to live according to our privilege, to live according to the fact that we are chosen. God, as capable believers, to demonstrate love to the people that so desperately need it, to be that merciful extension of your compassion. God, that what you've done to us, show us how to do for others. Give us eyes to see them. Give us a heart to respond to them. Give us feet to move to them. God, not so that we can receive glory, but that according to this text, so that they might see what we do and glorify you, so that they may be ready in the day of visitation so that we might be ready in the day of visitation. I praise you, God, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have to belong to your family. We worship you, Lord. We praise you, and we thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.